And back to our man, Mr. Greg Wilson. Greg, this brings us now to the point where you step and become the Greg Wilson that we all know in the 80s. Because I know we're getting to that point. You gave us a great history lesson. And for someone that said your schooling is not there, man, you are a professor of this music and incredibly well. You are a disciple, of course, and you've been there from the beginnings of it. But we know that, you know, you make your edits and we know you have studio um, know-how behind you. And I've, I mentioned pre-camera before we went on film. I saw the Studer, the Revox next to you in colorful colors on the reel to reel. And we know you travel around and do your DJ sets and you play these reels and these sets. Can you take us on a, on that journey now where that started for you, the re-editing and the process of the studio work posts, the radio shows and all that great stuff? Yeah. I mean, really what happened with me was that it all comes out of mixing. Um, I went to Germany in 1980. This was just before I landed the job at Wigan Pier. I came back from Germany to work at Wigan Pier. And while I was there, like I said, the, the clubs were much, much more, you know, advanced in terms of sound and lighting and everything than we were used to in the UK. And I went to one club in a city called Essen, called Librium, and the DJ was mixing there. Um, and he was kind of mixing between alternative and dance stuff. And... Uh, and I just felt in the right context, mixing is the way to go. You know, I kind of thought that penny dropped there, that if I had the right context for this, I could move in that direction. And I came back with Wigan Pier. We didn't have the 12, um, the 1200s, but we had the 15s. Um, and I kind of tinkered a bit there. But when I went to Legend, and I'm working to a, a predominantly black crowd who really know the music, not interested in DJ patter over the microphone. They just want to get down to the tunes. It felt, this is it, this is the place. And so I kind of moved in that direction. And the timing was impeccable because it was just as these early, what we call electro-funk records, were starting to emerge. So drum machine-based music was just starting to make its presence felt on the black music scene in the UK. And I was at this amazing club. Legend was an incredible, I mean, the pier was was brilliant, way ahead of the game from the UK side. Legend was, at the time, probably had the best sound system in the country, you know, custom designed sound system built by a company called Giuliana's, had ridiculous lighting, had something like a quarter mile of neon on, you know, the ceilings and stuff, laser systems. You could wipe the place out with smoke. And I mean, a guy called Gerald, you know, he used to come when he was a kid and he said he used to dance. He used to love it when it was just whited out. He said he couldn't see anything anywhere, you know, and lose himself in that space. So we had the environment. Now, with mixing, I had this kind of approach that nobody else could do. And, you know, it's not about the, the because they didn't have the equipment yet. They hadn't caught up with this. So I found myself in a position where, I was a novelty in a sense by being um, somebody who was mixing. And um, Mike Shaft, who did the radio show, the Soul Show on Piccadilly, called "Keep um, called Taking Care of Business," uh, invited me on in '82 to to do a mix, and um, and it became you know a local phenomenon. It just like blew up massively that I did mixes every few weeks 
on the radio and an end of year one the best of 82 and 83 i did which were huge you know still talked about now by people the amount of people recorded them on you know straight off the radio onto cassettes and stuff um and so that really brought up you know my profile um massively you know so and at the same time legend had become this major club that was as upfront as anywhere you're going to get in the uk and ram packed every wednesday for all the time between may 82 and when i stopped working there at the end of 83 so all these factors were in place for this new thing that was happening that's what it was i became the new and the old was about to go it was bringing the new you know like and um and so for a time that there wasn't uh, much that people could do to compete, they could buy the music, but they didn't have the environment to play it in. Mind you, they say they could buy the music. You can Anyone can buy the music, but it's how you play it. You know, it's, it's, it's what order you put things into. So that's where I was. I got this radio mixes. And what they used to do was they brought somebody, uh, they'd come into the club in the daytime to record the mix. And they recorded it onto reel to reel. And it was a Revox B77 reel to reel. The reason they used that machine was because it was a portable editing unit. Uh, the biggest in Europe. I mean, all the news stations used it. Some of the okay. best editing I've ever seen were used. So, so for people that, let, let's let's take it down to class 101. What exactly do you mean portable editing? Well, that you can carry this really heavy machine around with you. You can record onto it and you can cut the tape on the road you know it has its own little block on it where you can and um, you have like a splicing tape which uh you use a razor you know i put it on a razor blade and then in the groove of and you put the tape back together again and that's that's what you did back then you know uh yeah because tell the people there was no such thing as digital editing yet there was no, no you did it all and if you got it wrong you had to undo it all and start again and, uh, <laughs> yeah, exactly you had to do it all over again so i mean i wasn't uh, really at all aware at this point that there'd been all this thing going on in the 70s with djs in new york who were doing their own edits and playing them in the clubs and walter gibbons with 10 percent and all that kind of stuff we weren't aware of that 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 hadn't kind of so the, the, the reel-to-reel -reel to me was just a means to an end to transport what I did into the radio studio and top and tail it and play it. And um, that's how it went for a few months. And then one day there was nobody there to do the editing to top and tail it. And I found myself in an editing booth and I'd been shown how to edit a few years ago because I'd made a tape for radio in the talking days and what you had to do. If you sent a tape to radio, they just wanted to hear your presentation style. They didn't want the full track. So you edited after the intro and just before the outro, tried to do a clean edit. And that's how I've been showing editing about three years before. But I found myself in this, this like um, editing booth and I loved it. And next thing I'm turning bits of tape around and I'm doing tricks and, you know, very rudimentary now when i look at it but i just loved it and and so i decided at the end of 82 i was going to buy my own revox i bought a couple of 1200s set up a home studio and did my mixes from there you know and they didn't become as live anymore whereas when they come in the club it was just me doing a live mix and they were capturing it now it was taking me all day to do it because i was wanting to put all little bits in there and tricks in there and where I got my influence as well from, there was a big influence that came to me 
from, from New York in terms of uh, Big Apple Productions Volume One. Do you know it? The bootleg record. Yeah. I, I think Mickey Miola might have been behind it, although some people have said Latin Rascals might have been behind. I think it's Mickey Miola. Um, and I remember that. I remember that uh, that twelve inch. Yes, I do remember that. That. I, I, I could kind of figure what was going on in there. And the other massive one was the Kiss FM Master Mixes Volume 1, Shep Pettibone, when he was... Well, that's what I was going to say to you. The reason why that, that Big Apple thing was happening was because Shep was on the radio and he was editing stuff every week. Yeah, well, he did that Sharon Red, Can You Handle It, where he's playing around with a voice, and that had a big impact on me. And I did a few things like that down the line. So I could kind of now start to hear what was going on and what people were doing. And I started to just follow my own. I mean, you know, it's funny because I realised that some of the conclusions I came to independently were exactly the same conclusions that people in New York had come to. But wait a minute. What do you mean saying conclusions? What were some of the things that were going on that you were thinking about, like, you know, to make these records and these edits and things? Well, well, I mean, just the way that, you know, you made it up as you went. I'd even measure it with a ruler sometimes and then half beat it and quarter beat it and, you know, do things like that. And, um, you know, I was just finding my own way through it without, there was no one there to say there is a right way or a wrong way of doing that. And I hadn't had the, um, you know, I hadn't been able to, hear from anyone from a New York perspective how they were going about these things but it seemed that I took a similar path you know that it seemed to go in a similar direction the one thing I didn't do and it always kind of surprises me was I never played edits and I never took it into the club the edits I did at the time were for radio oh really you never you never played them and the ones that I did, I, when I stopped DJing at the end of 83 in 84 I was trying to get some remix work and it was a really funny... I mean, I've been trying to get remix work for two years and the, the UK company, I knew everyone who worked there and they were just saying, well, they keep telling us it's American DJs that remix, you know. The, and it was frustrating, you know. It's like, so, because I was English, they weren't going to let me remix something. And in the end, that led me off into starting to make my own music and uh, work with other musicians and start to produce and stuff just to kind of get stuff out because I was so frustrated because I wanted to remix and in 84 you know i did a series of what i call turntable edits so using two turntables a cassette for like any sample sounds and cutting you know the tape up and i did a series of tracks that and i chose you know purposefully uh, tracks that were big tracks that everyone knew so they could hear so the people at the record companies could hear what i was doing so i chose things like i feel for you chaka khan or um frankie goes to hollywood two tribes and uh Spritty Politi at the time they're woobies and absolutes and i did and they a couple of them turned out upon a later credit to the edit compilation so the idea was to try to show them what I could do to let me get into a studio. To I just, damn you all, let me in there. I can do this. Well, that, was, that was how I felt. Just, just pay for the time. Just pay the studio time. Let me do it. I'll show you, right? Definitely. That was definitely it. Well, there were- People don't understand that. How we used to go knock on their doors and they would be like, Greg, come on, man. We can't do this. Jellybean's doing remixes. Uh, Mark Kamen's. I can hear them saying it, too. Well, Mark, we just got the American mixes from Mark Kamen's come over, right? And you're going, 
but I can do this. Ah, they, they don't see, they don't see the treasures in their own yard. I always said that they yeah. sometimes the labels don't see the treasures until you or somebody goes on radio and starts playing the single your way. And then their eyes open up bling. So what's the bling moment for you? When did that change? What happened? Well, in bling, in what respect? In other words, that they said, oh, Jesus, we got to come now. You're going to knock on your door and we want you to do the, the mixes now and stuff. I don't what was a changing factor? I don't really know if that ever happened in any main sense, because by the time those doors did open, I'd moved away from all that. Again, I was no longer a DJ. I was producing. I was working, you know, made mainly within hip hop, you know, at that time. So, um, you know, so I don't know. I, I never really connected with that until in more recent times, you know, nowadays. But now, now it's a different time. Back then, if you did a remix, you got really well paid for it. Yeah. Whereas nowadays, there's no money in it at all. You know, it's it's more or less a calling card for yourself as opposed to something that you could make a living out of. So and that kind of all missed me by in a way. I know. it's just It was a big business for a lot of us. In the, back in the day, you must have you must have done all right. <laughs> I did very well. A lot of my also my counterparts did very well too. They made more than I made, but I, I tell you, I was blessed to work with some great records over the years. And you know, it is what it is. So you, you know, you're you know, they always say, "Be careful for what you wish for. You just never know when it's going to come." Mm, definitely. And your wish came when you've already moved on. You just didn't. <laughs> you were like, "I'm done with that already." And that I think that was a problem with in a sense for me that I tended to do that. I tended to move on if it wasn't there for me and re-strategize and go off in a different direction. And then all of a sudden it will be happening. The very thing I was waiting, you know, when I saw it all open up in the uh, kind of acid house era, and then you have loads of English DJs are now starting to remix and do very well out of it. You know, um, you start to see these things and realize that sometimes you can be just a little bit ahead of the curve and stuff. And it, it's not the right timing for it, but I'm not the kind of person that just waits around for a few years until the timing comes. I've already moved on by then. And sometimes that's to my detriment because I miss out on, um, you know, opportunity. Yeah. When it opens up, but you know, that's the way it is. I'm, that's the way I am. I can't kind of help that. I just, uh, if, you know, even like going back, I wanted to get on radio before I was 18 and I was lined up to do the soul show in Liverpool. The guy was going to move to another station and it was all going ahead. And then it all went wrong. He didn't move stations. I didn't get the show. And I completely changed direction I, I, because I hadn't got on radio by the time I was 18. It's crazy now. I think back, but I had that ambition at the time. It didn't happen. So the next thing was I went and worked in Europe as, uh, you know, on contracts. And next. <laughs> he said, yeah. next, I'm on to you. Let's go. If it would have waited around, you know, within 18 months, there was another DJ doing that show anyway, you know. But again, it's that it's that waiting around for something. And, um, you know, it just wasn't the right timing. And so, so give us the inside, the hip-hop side of it, so that you were already now in hip-hop. Where is this taking you? Well, I mean, hip-hop really was... The electro-funk scene of the early 80s and what I was playing, when Legend was at its peak, uh, you're talking about the time with, you know, um, Street Wave, Arthur's Label, Tommy Boy, you know, um, 
man Parish coming out with all that. I mean, hip hop, bebop, Planet Patrol, all those yeah. records. Yep. And these are all the better known side. We were playing all sorts of stuff from 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 this kind of area of music. I mean, it's such a creative period in New York. I mean. Because all these records, there was no set standard. It wasn't like everything was the same BPM. There were down tempo, there were fast stuff. There was, it just coming in from, I think it was such a creative period for music, such a hybrid period, you know, everything working itself out, where's it going to go to? And I think out of that, hip hop formulated itself fully. Uh, techno would emerge and house would emerge, you know, from the technological progress of, of, of that period. So, you know, from hip hop, well, you know, when I stopped DJing, uh, the the hip hop scene in the UK was now emerging, i.e. a lot of young black kids were either breakdancing or they were starting to become DJs and they were starting to kind of become turntablists. And that was already in motion. Uh, and I ended up working with a, a British rap crew, a master rap crew called the Ruthless Rap Assassins, who we ended up doing two albums for EMI. And although, you know, on a kind of um, commercial level, we never made it, we got massive acclaim, you know, throughout the music press. We were seen as the first authentic British rap crew. Uh, and we got a lot of love from that. And some of the people that were involved in it went on to big careers in, in other directions. Uh, again, it was one of those head, ahead of the curve sides. It was, we were coming in from, we were bringing rock and indie into kind of uh, the, the experience because that was what they were experiencing around them as well as the black music in Manchester. And that was all part of, you know, what we were, were doing, but that was seen as as really different and odd at the time. Yet, you know, two, three years later, you've got Rage Against the Machine and things like that coming through. So, you know, we, we, we just, again, we're unfortunate that our timing, but, you know, historically, we did those two albums. What's great about them is they give... Manchester at that moment in time that everybody wants to talk about now when the Hacienda was at its peak and the whole Manchester thing going on, these give the black perspective, which is undocumented in a lot of ways, but these two albums exist and they are exactly about that. They're exactly about the times, um, you know, that people were going through then, you know. And so that was my period where I was like, more heavily involved in hip hop. Before that, I, uh, in, in in '84, I also managed Broken Glass, who were a massive breakdown stroke b boy crew. We didn't use the term b boy at the time. Right. Um, and, what would and, you What would you call that crew back in that time? Well, I mean, what we just said, breakdown. You wouldn't say b boy. You would just be like. Yeah. Right. Well, the, the term B-Boy we saw through, uh, you know, B-Boys Beware by Two Sisters and a few other records and stuff. But, uh, I mean, even even in New York, you know, like Rocksteady talk about, they were using... Rocksteady crew, yeah. At the time, but they now go back to B-Boying. So people who are into that culture, they're, they're straight on B-Boying. But, I mean, for authenticity, I always use the term, like in, in the book, I'll use breakdancing because that's what we used at the time. So I don't... I don't, I don't think it's right to kind of change the term retrospectively. You know, we need to show. Well, that. you know what, Greg, to be honest, you couldn't get away from it. Yeah. That music was was happening. You know, you, you had a, a major force nightclub in New York called the Fun House with Jelly Boom playing it. Arthur Baker was a lot behind it. There was other producers doing it. Like, you know, you mentioned uh, Man Parish and all those guys. So amongst everything else going on of the, of the say, D-Train style records. Yeah. You know, and the more blacker side of R&B dance, which slowed down, you had this wider side of funkiness, 
pose with hip hop together to create that electro sound. Well, it's funny you mentioned that D-Strain track because I always cite that as a very important release and a very distinctive release. And I think that it's one of those records that if you highlight it now, people go, yeah, it's a really good record, but there's loads of records like it. But the reason there's loads of records like it was because that was the original. In That's right. That was the one that set precedence for everybody. They don't get, they forget that. Yeah. You tell that all the time too. It's the first rap. Well, that's the first one where he's known for kind of rapping, yeah. singing in the song where you never heard that before. So there's a few things going on at the same we, time. We went for the, you know, the, I, I always played the, the other side of it where the vocal kind of, there's that kind of dubbed out vocal towards the end. It starts with those really sharp kind of keys. Um, and those keys, they sounded so different when they when I first heard that record it, the way it cut through and everything and again when I spoke to Francois about that track um, T.W. Funkmaster's Love Money he says he heard, here's T.W. Funkmaster's Love Money his next studio session is You're the One for Me D-Train so the influence into D-Train You're the One for Me comes from Love Money so let me give you the perspective on this side of the world so you get so everybody understands so up until that point, there was no such thing as dub versions yet in dance music. Yep. So Francois was into reggae as well. And he found that TW, as, a, as, as a Greg Lynch, TW Funkmaster's record, as one of those records that had this long intro, big claps and bass was prevalent. The bass became more of the solo front part than anything else. So keep on and you're the one for me. Those dub mixes that he does are pretty much coming off of the reggae dub sound. Yeah. Yeah. And that's and how... Said to me, said that, was, that was his impetus to kind of take that. That's down. right. And Larry LeVan made it famous when he started playing it and everybody else wanted to have, just like when they had the clap. He never heard that stuff before in records. Wild yeah. things like that going crazy. Again, that was, you know... Now we hear it all the time, It's it, but there's always the first time you hear it, and that's where it begins, people. Write that down your pen and paper. The next you know, major landmark record on that level was um, Larry LeVan's Peach Boys, Don't Make Me Wait. Oh. It, sounded like, it sounded like it was made out of granite or something. It was, uh, uh, sounded like nothing, um, and that made a, a big kind of impression. And then you, then it all rolled out sooner. I mean, after after that, the, you had Cinnamon, thanks to you, which was obviously influenced by Don't Make Me Wait, which was huge, a huge underground track, uh, you know. In, in, well, in I remember that. Michael DeBenedictus from Peach Boys telling me them were together in the studio and Larry, you know, pushed up that, that fader and he turned that aux to get that echo on the claps. That was played in the garage and Shep and them all jumped. You heard every record after. They all heard it and they were inspired. Yeah, Walking on Sunshine. He found fire. Oh. Somebody found fire. They all wanted fire now, <laughs> you know? Definitely. And I think by that point, the floodgate, you know, then you go into another realm completely and, and Bambata does Planet Rock. Ah. That changes the whole game, you know, because everyone um, is going to be, you know, what is this? This is the future. And even though it wasn't, uh, it wasn't an instantly massive track, funnily enough, uh, because on, on the scene I was involved in, I say black music scene, coming from soul and funk, a lot of purist people within that, 
the idea that this is craft work. This is, you know, the, on a soul night, on a black night, you know. The, so the what it wasn't immediate. There was a, I got a lot of criticism for playing Planet Rock. Um, you know, that's where I think people started to say that I was, you know, the music that I was playing. I, I, I was seen as a heretic for a while because I was changing the dynamics of the scene by playing these records. And the previous generation, for them, it was, this isn't soul, this, this is machine music, this is, you know, and they, they couldn't get it, they couldn't see it, you know, at all. And uh, there was a massive resistance at first to it all. And um, it was very difficult because, you know, the, the magazines would be kind of, I mean, one magazine, Blues and Soul Writer, wouldn't even print the word Electro. We asterisked it like it was a swear word. So, you know. Really? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I, I was getting all this, you know. You were getting caned by all the I was, I was At the time, I was, what, 22. I'm at the top of my game. My, my two clubs, Legend and Wigan Pier, the biggest, I mean, they were voted number one and two in the North by Blues and Soul. I got top DJ. There I am, young guy, big ego. Give me a pat on the back. I'm doing all right, aren't I? And people are saying... No, you're not. <laughs> no, you're not. You're and there were people I respected as well. You know, that was a thing. I respected these people. I didn't, you know, and, and, and for a while it was really difficult. But in the end, I kind of, I switched it. And I looked at my crowd who were young black kids. And I, I looked at the people who were criticising, who seemed to be middle-aged white people, and thought, who are you to say what black music is? Ask the kids what, you know, the... Because they were, I mean, one of the things that was said, and it really kind of got to me, that somebody said, I was leading the ki these kids astray. I was leading this crowd astray. And I kind of thought about that, and I'd come back and said, you, you don't lead these people anywhere. They are the leaders. What you do, you can reciprocate with them. You can hit the level with them via what you're doing. But if your music doesn't cut with these kids, you're gone. It's It's over with. So... Don't think that there's some kind of malleable crowd that you can just, you know, make listen to this electronic stuff and, uh, you know, they'll just go along with that because they don't know any better. This was the way it was going. And, uh, you know, eventually it was proved right, you know, and, uh, and a lot of the people who did criticise me to their credit said to me later, we were wrong. Some of these people got massively into house and I always used to think to myself... Yeah, you wouldn't get into electro when it was a kind of funk rhythm and it was, you know, but you'll get into something where you, you take it down to a straight four, you know. Uh, now you're saying that's okay, but you were saying that before wasn't okay. Um, How it, dare you? <laughs> How dare you? <laughs> but it's just moving with the times, you know. And, and, and in any, I mean, it's like we were saying about Northern Soul before, there was a schism on the Northern Soul scene because Blackpool Mecca, where Levine and Curtis played, around the mid-80s, because of Levine's influence and because Curtis was open-minded, they started playing contemporary records alongside the older records. So they started to play, dis, um, you know, kind of... You know, when I, think of, when I think of Ian Levine, I think of dun, 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 uh, um, high energy. Energy, you know, that's what he became. And he later he, he started producing boy bands. He was very, very commercial. But in those Northern Soul days, he was such an influential uh, figure and such a controversial figure as well, you know. Um, and so, you know, what they did was they took the Northern Soul scene into New York disco, in a sense, uh, from their perspective. Um, and 
you know, introduced a lot of those tunes into it. Wigan Casino kept the faith and they stayed with the old 60s stuff. And there was a massive schism that, you know, all sorts of arguments within the black music press between these two factions and stuff. It's amazing uh, that the passion, you, you would never think that this was going on, but this truly was going on, that the, the, the war, in a sense, you yeah. guys are doing what you feel is right, and they're slagging you up, saying that's what we—that's not what we're used to. We don't like this computerized, robotic music now. That's what it was. The institutions fighting back against robots. And yeah, the robots are winning. <laughs> <laughs> so it, you know that electro period for me was was the next schism, you know, of the black music scene, and. Um, you know, it was very uncomfortable for a while, but eventually, you know, as I say, I kind of was clear in my mind what was going on. And, um, and you know, with time, it was proved right. But, you know, it wounded me at the time. I, I took a few knocks. Of course it would wound you because you're doing what you think. You, you got the crowd screaming and loving what everything you're doing. The radio's playing in the mixes. You're doing it right. You're thinking you're on top and then you're reading something completely opposite. It yeah. does hurt. Of course. The local record shop that sold me the records, and one of the biggest critics was one of the guys who worked there. They put in their window an electro shit chart. <laughs> so they were selling the music, but electro shit. I don't like. Oh saying? my God. So, where does that take you from there? Where do you go from there? Well, where, you know, so from, from Legend was such, such a big club. Um, uh, every Wednesday, just like queues up the street and everything. And this obviously translated across Manchester and the Hacienda had opened up in May 82. And um, I remember, you know, the few nights where the management of Legends said, oh, there's a couple of people in from the Hacienda tonight. Tony Wilson was quite famous. He was on the TV and so we knew him when he was about. And, you know, they kind of about and... And then I got a shout from Mike Pickering and Rob Gretton. Rob Gretton was New Order's manager. Mike was, um, he wasn't a DJ then. He was the booker. He booked the bands and everything for the club. And they wanted me to take over on a Friday and do what was the first full-on dance music night there. They wanted to bring the black crowd over as well. You know, they wanted to mix these crowds together. They'd been over and seen Danceteria and seen the Fun House and uh, these kind of places. And they... They wanted a bit in New York. and But at the time in the UK, the dynamic was different than New York. So the idea of a black crowd and an alternative crowd coming together was not going to happen at that moment in time. So those early years for the Haciendas were a real struggle trying to make it work. I mean, those Fridays I did there, a lot of them, you know, it felt like huge club, cold, not a lot of people, even you could lose a couple of hundred people in there completely. So I just remember it as one-off nights that we had that were really good. We had um, Houdini from New York came over. That was a great night. Newsman to a British electro band. Um, we had a huge breakdancing championships there, the first in the country. Um, so, but, but overall, my time at the Hacienda was... There's not many good memories. They had the DJ boob at the time. You've got to take this into consideration. They had a stage, and to the side of the stage, un going down so that 
on floor level, you had a slats that you could see out of and you could see people's feet. You're in a separate room, and that's where the DJ booth was originally in the Hacienda. The I... mixer was positioned up here. I got there, and the mixer's here, and there's no faders on it. There's only buttons to press, and I'm saying... This is crazy. I need a, you know, how do you do? And they're saying, oh, this is from France and there's only two mixers like this and it's just great. And I had to work with this crazy mixer where I had to press this. Oh, and, and but the funny thing was years later, uh, I did an article about it and the person who, who designed the mixer got in touch and said there was a second part to it but they decided not to buy the second part. They just used the first. And the second part, the crossfader on it, everything. So we were, they hadn't a clue. The Hacienda, really, I mean, they didn't know about dance music. Probably Rob Gretton was the best in terms of that because he'd worked as a DJ himself at a club called Rafters. And, you know, Mike wasn't a DJ then. They, they had the, the intention, it was all there, but... The dynamics of the scene, they hadn't worked out. They didn't know what it was, and they were just trying to make it work. And they were like these crazy dreamers trying to make this mad club go off. And it would have gone under. It would not have survived but for Blue Monday. Blue Monday's success saved that club and bankrolled it for a number of years. I'm going to ask about that. What do you mean when you say Blue Monday for the ones that don't know who that band is? I know what it is. It's it's more of your uh, new wave sound that, that pulls most out of the dance scene. But what exactly mean bankrolling? Were they playing every every weekend there? What was the, the success of the single uh, Blue Monday by New Order was because Factory owned who had the record label who had New Order. They and that went massive, and that kind of you know saved the skin. New Order never got any money out of uh, their, their career for a few years because it was all ploughed into the hacienda. So yeah, you know, I mean, my time in essence. Like, in essence, New Order would be the owners of Hacienda for that matter. Peter Hook owns the, um, the the whole brand now. It's he, he, you know, they they are. They, I do uh, remember meeting him when I came to play. Right. I do remember yeah. when I did meet them because they were doing the Americans. They were bringing the American DJs to come and play. I remember that when I met him. Yeah. And and so you know, like Hacienda got through by a wing and a prayer. It it, it should have failed. It it was. You know, it was a disaster. They went into it in the whole... They opened it seven nights a week when they only needed to open it three or four. You know, they 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 had it open from, I think, about six o'clock at night so people could even... There was a hairdresser's in there. Was it a dinner? What was it, a dinner club? <laughs> it, was, it was crazy the way they run it, you know, but they there was method in their madness and they saw something in New York by being at by new order success and also the success of a certain ratio there and Quando Quango who had loved That's months. another record. I was gonna say Quando Quando for sure. Mike's band, Mike Pickering's band as well, yep. you know. So they, they, Children, get your Quando Quando on YouTube. That's Mike Pickering's original band before yeah, M people. It is, and that was a number four US dance hit, uh, mixed by Mark Caymans as well. I mean, the the funny thing was when I was at the Hacienda, there was uh, a lot of talk at the time that I was going to come to New York and do a month at the Danceteria while Mark Caymans came to the Hacienda and it was, we were going to do a monthly a month exchange. Uh, nothing ever came of it. Um, but years later, I spoke to Mark about it, and not not long before he died, we were actually putting into a planning stage. We were going to do two gigs over a weekend, one in Manchester, one in New York, where we both played at. 
Um, we had that on the agenda, and then I heard that he died in Mexico. A heart attack. He had a heart attack in Mexico. Yeah. And so, uh, which was such a shame and everything. But yeah, Mark was a good friend of Mike Pickering's, and he was the first American DJ to play the Hacienda. I think Mark was the first American DJ for a lot of things to go play in, in Japan as well. Mm. Because I don't think it was anybody free to him. Yeah. No. He, as far as I know, like, I, for example, I know Kenny Carpenter and Larry Levin, they went to Israel in, in, in Kenny in the early 80s. But I never heard of anybody going to Japan before or any of these places. For that matter, when we had our scene going on in New York, because we felt New York, there was no other place except New York, egotistically yeah. speaking. We didn't think about England or, say, even Los Angeles. Nothing. Oh, it's all about New York, you know? You were, you were the center of the universe, though, weren't For you? a moment in time, we were. You were the Rome of the modern age. Yes, we were. As yes, John we Lennon were. said. <laughs> but, you know, to, to, you know to, to sum it up, I mean, you know, um, the stylings, the fashion, the music was all coming out of New York. Yes, we did rule the roost for a moment. Yes. And then... House music is beginning and things kind of change. Mm -hmm. It starts this side of the pond and it becomes very popular on your side of the pond where careers began for a lot of people, you know, really big careers. Yeah. And uh, yeah. that's why I've always said without the UK, there would have been no, none of this would be as long, 30, 33, 34 years of still going with house music. It's a long time. You know, and also I think that the, the, it could only have happened in England because of its own lineage. It was the the, the uh, uh, collision of the lineage of the UK with the lineage of the US and the perfect storm. And that's that happened with uh, the acid house rave scene and, and everything that kind of resulted from that, you know. And it just became what was once underground became massive mainstream culture. So the years at Hacienda, as far as you going on, and I know Hacienda ended, of course, and we're into the 90s now. Where is your life at this point and where are you going? Well, I mean, I, as I say, I stopped. I was only at the Hacienda a matter of months. Uh, the end of eight, 83, I stopped DJing and concentrated on trying to be a record producer. Uh, had a little bit of success at first and then it all went wrong and I found myself basically struggling to survive and um, ended up in London, kind of got back on my feet. That's when I got the Rap Assassins who were the hip-hop crew, uh, the deal with EMI, and then for the next five years, that was my life was working with them. Uh, you know, after that... As before it, you know, it was a roller coaster. You know, this world that we live in, you know, it's, it's up and it's down. I've I've seen the hard times and I've seen the good times. And um, and the nineties for me was a particular struggle. I just couldn't get my grounding in the nineties at all. And, um, there were certainly points where I had the old Marlon Brando. I could have been a contender. Thing thinking about what happened, what what I used to do. I was doing all right, and now. You know, I can't even get some money to get in the studio to try and do a track, you know, because you know what it was like then. You had to pay your money to go make a record. You had to right. get the studio out. So it was, there was something to be paid up front. You know, it's not like now. You just open your computer and try a few ideas. So, yeah, I kind of very much 
in the 90s, lost step with things, um, stopped going out to clubs completely. So I was very unaware of what was going on. Um, but, you know, in the 2000s, with the internet especially, what it was was when I went online and, and for the first time properly and looked around, I saw there was um, forums and websites that were dealing with aspects of uh, dance history, and dance culture. And mm -hmm. um, from my perspective, it was what was missing. There was so much missing there. And the electro thing was hardly even touched upon. It was even in books and stuff that people had written, it was like it didn't exist. The black crowd didn't exist. It was like these... DJs went to Ibiza in 87 and brought everything back with them, and that was it. And this was the narrative that was being told. And so I decided that I was going to set up a website which became Electro Funk Roots, which specifically dealt with the early 80s, what led to it, what came from it. And that was how I came back into the fold. And as a result of that, a few people said, would you be up for DJing? And, and yeah, okay, now the time's right. I did a gig in Manchester at the end of uh, 2003. Ralph Lawson was there from Back to Basics and a few other. It wasn't very well attended. I mean, maybe 100 people there, but again, the right 100. And from that, I got a, another gig, another gig. I did Back to Basics. I did Electric Chair in Manchester. And all of a sudden, you know, I was kind of finding my feet and, and returning to DJing and and then just snowballed year on year. You know, I did the credit to the early album in 2005, which was when I first came over to New York uh, on the back of that. And, you know, I'm waiting for it to plateau uh, and it doesn't. It keeps building and building and the re-edit scene, uh, you know, plays right into my hands because I was doing edits back then. Now, all of a sudden, because of computer technology, re-edits are a big thing. People want to kind of reinvent old music and uh, update it and stuff. And so I found... You know, myself there at the Zeitgeist and, right. and, and it will enable me to come back into play on my own terms without, you know, like, you know, because I remember in the 90s it was suggested I come back into DJ and I had a meeting with someone and, and they were saying, right, well, um, after the conversation, I kind of figured that what they were saying to me is get yourself a couple of hundred quid together go to a record shop and buy a couple of hundred quid's worth of records that sound pretty similar and call that a set and you can go out and play. And I was like, well, no, because I want to play a bit of this and a bit of that and a bit of that. And they were like, well, you can't really do that. And so I backed off it, you know, I backed off the idea of any kind of comeback then. But, you know, I, by seeing clubs like the, I don't know if you were aware of the electric chair in Manchester, no, I don't know that that club. It's a club that opened in in the nineties originally, and but its real glory days were like in the first, you know, part of the this century, um, the two thousands. Uh, and it was a guy called Luke Unabomber and Justin, and um, they, you know, Luke has some kind of connection back to the black scene in Sheffield and stuff. And when I went in there, I mean, it's a massive night. They had Francoise played there, Danny Cribb, all these, you know, they had Harvey, people like that, even at that point in time. Um, it was the biggest underground kind of night in the country. But what I loved about it when I went there was the music. It was It was coming from all over the place. There was house, there was, you know, 60s, few 60s tracks were played. There was disco, there was edits, there, you know, and I just... Thought that that's that's the vibe that you know I'm I'm into and and the um, funny thing about that vibe this is how it all began that way 
Yes. That's how it all began. A good where you yes, played a good record because on the merit of a good record, not because of the genre. Yeah, and we never played it all one way. I mean, when I was at, Le- even the electro period, I was still playing jazz. We had two jazz breaks a night. And I'm talking like South American kind of stuff, jazz fusion, where these incredible jazz dancers got up and did the thing. And that was still going on throughout the period that I was playing all this kind of New York electro stuff as well, as well as the more soul-based tracks, as well as the more orthodox funk tracks that were coming out at the time, Rick James or whoever it might be. So all this came into the remit of a, a funk night or a black, you know, a jazz funk night or electro funk night. They were just the uh, overriding terms, you know. So on a jazz funk night, jazz funk was played, but also disco was played. The, I mean, some of, some of the big disco tracks that played on the jazz funk nights that kind of are almost seen as jazz funk classics would be like Delirium, Francine McGee, Dreaming a Dream, Crown Heights of Fur, which was originally played at Blackpool Mecca. That was one of the tracks that the Northern Soul guys uh, started to play. You know, so these kind of disco tracks crossed into uh, a jazz area as as well, you know. Um, So it was never one way. It was always, there was a predominant style of music, but um, the best of the other tracks, you'd be be playing the the big kind of import tunes and stuff. Because some people, you know, remember you also stepping and doing the essential mix and getting, you know, that was a big thing too. You got the essential mix. All these things were starting to come into play. I mean, the essential mix changed it massively. And how does that change something for someone? I I even remember when I heard about the essential mix, I just got into um, San Francisco airport and I was waiting for the bags and my agent said, oh, they've actually done an essential mix. And it, I didn't look on it as that massive a thing at the time. It's strange because I remember the Essential Mix from the 90s and it was huge and I thought that was its heyday. And I hadn't bargained for the power of the internet at the time. This was, what, 2009. I just, I I thought it'd be played on Radio 1. It'd have its audience. I also, because of the music I selected, I'd taken a lot of tracks from the past and stuff uh, into it and... I thought it split their audience because they had a jingle at the time in New Music We Trust and it was a very young station. I thought, <laughs> yeah, I'm going to get criticism from one side of the people for the old stuff. And and so I did it and, you know, I knew I'd done a good job with it. I put a lot of kind of energy into it and thought into it and I knew. And every track, I, I mean, basically what I did, I took a pool of about 90 tracks Right, there were about 40-odd in the mix, but there were a pool that I chose from. And every one of those tracks, I, I edited to a coherent two minutes or something. So every one was already in a two-minute with an intro and an outro for me to mix from. And that's how I kind of put it together. So we're back to 82 bits and pieces mentality. Yeah, oh, yeah definitely. It's, it was like bits all over the place. We're going to get bits of 90 records. We're going to fit this all in the essential mix. We're going to get it all in. Well, you know, the, the, then it went out, and then the next day when I saw the comments come in, and it was such a so positive, but it was all over the world. There were people everywhere. I just hadn't realised that the the reach that this thing had, and rather than it being it passed its sell by dates, it was bigger than ever, you know. And um, and that, you know, that is the reason that I play all over the world. You know, is is the essential. Everyone, you know, has heard it. Everyone, you know, kind of come talk to me and say. That's one of the main things that they say about. So 
it was a, a massive moment for me in terms of like um, bringing my career to a completely different place, I suppose. I was more like underground clubs, small, great nights, you know, but, but, you know, promoters who were getting their mates together and they built a night and got 300 people, 200 people together. And it was like that before that. But after that, it was, uh, it started to kind of move into a slightly different, different level, you know, And, and the balance is always trying to keep the underground and the more mainstream, you know, kind of gigs balanced off because you don't want to kind of fall into a place where you're disconnected from uh you know the, the underground it's so important to kind of retain that connection in some way you know so you can have a vibe of what's going on i mean it's a different underground now it's an older i mean if you're really talking underground underground you're talking what teenagers are going to be into now so we're so removed from that we're talking about uh, an underground where uh People maybe who've been through clubbing a bit, and although I have a, there's a lot of younger people who, who come along, uh, th- they're digging a bit deeper. They're wanting to kind of discover edits or discover like uh, disco tracks that they didn't know, or you know. So so it's got a kind of underground basis, but it's not underground like what we were talking about in the old days because that was a young audience, you know, that was, and it's always the young audience. It's the vital audience. And after all this pandemic is over, you know, it's a new age and it's going to be young DJs uh, coming through and taking it and taking it in their direction. And we, we can only kind of help them along in any way that we can, but you know, it's not our, you know, we're the kind of, uh, I suppose it's, it's come to a point. I mean, it's funny actually, because when I started out, I was, I was 15 and I was the youngest guy. And so I, and, and I was always the youngest two of everybody. Yes. DJing is a young man's game, they call it. And I say man's because there were very few women that were involved in it. And um, and so you find yourself, you know, the other end of that, you're 60 and you're kind of still doing it. And, and people will come along who are like, could be your grandkids and are really, you know, into what you do and know about and read about you and stuff like that. It's really a remarkable thing. But... I suppose that we've been put in the kind of the role like as maestro now, like a, a conductor of an orchestra. The age thing works for us. The experience works. People You're like, a true muso, mate. True yeah, muso, man. <laughs> <laughs> we, we, we need to have our batons and, you know, like wave everybody. Baton. Okay, one. Well, knock, knock, knock. Come on, everyone. Come on. So now... You've been gigging since strong, since the essential mix of 09, heavy, heavy, heavy. Um, we're at the point now, up until March of this year, you've been traveling almost every week, I would presume. Like pretty, you had a yeah. pretty extensive, um, full on. How do you keep yourself in shape? What do you do? You know, what's, what's part, you know, let's be real. You got to get on planes, trains, automobiles to get to these gigs. That becomes, and I tell this from my side all the time, people, the DJ gigs are never really the work. For yeah. me, the work was always getting and getting back or getting to the next one. Because to, to, we love what you do. It's never a job. So we're going to ask, we're going to ask him, how does he handle that kind of lifestyle? I mean, that, that's exactly what I say. The work, I mean, the playing of the music, the actual DJing is straightforward it's easy once i'm set up and do that that's it, it's the getting there it's the the hotels it's the you know 
kind of airport lounge. It's, it's all all that. And and to some people, they think, oh, that's great. You know, you've got an exotic life. You go all over the world. Very rarely see a lot of the places. You know, you're kind of catching up on sleep or you've got to get on a plane first thing in the morning. There's, you know, there's all these things. So, so yeah, you know, I mean, that's that that is the struggle of it you know is that you have to kind of, and and from my point of view you know i, I weighed this up and, and i i um I, you know made a good decision which was that i took on a personal trainer and went to the gym three times a week and basically kept myself as fit as i can because i knew that if i didn't do this it was going to kind of get on top of me at some point because you know, you're lugging that Revox around all the airports and you're kind of not sleeping like you should do and, and everything. So I, I try to counter that, you know, I mean, since lockdown and everything, I haven't been able to go to the gym, you know, I've got like an exercise bike here that, you know, I can get on, but I've missed that, you know. And I think you do, and you have to prioritise that as well because, you know, I, I, I put that in as part of my work. So going to the gym was my work. Um, and I didn't enjoy it. I wasn't like one of these, oh, I love going on the gym. I feel really refreshed. It was hard to do, but I knew I had to do it. Um, and, you know, it's it's been been a benefit from that side because I think if I hadn't done that, I would have put weight on and stuff and then, you know, everything. <laughs> well, I have. I haven't been that active. I got to get to the gym as quick as I can. I'm thinking about when we come back out of this, I got to get myself back into shape because this is tough being home. I'll be no, honest with you. I feel the same. I feel like now that I'm kind of like... So rickety racket. It's like I hear my... It's like, you know, I'm like really stiff. I'm like, this sucks. I want that, the thing is, you've got to make it priority, though. If you say it's second priority or third priority, you won't go. You'll, you'll always... That's got to be first on the totem pole. On the you've pet- got to do. I'm going to do the mix today. So you've got to go. It's got to be your, your top thing. And then you'll do it. And then you feel better for doing it. And, you know... Greg, most, <laughs> most importantly, people, young aspiring producers are doing these re-edits and productions and stuff, and they're sending you stuff. Are you checking out new music from other guys and implementing them in your sets, or are you pretty close to what you play? And that's the way it is. No, I, I'm really open, and if I hear something, you know, that's, uh, I mean, I just uh, did a mix for, like, a station in Liverpool called Melodic Extraction, and we're doing a fundraiser of more recent stuff and I look I wish I could find more stuff that's um you know on that kind of level but well you know yourself you're trawling through so much music now so many people are making stuff everybody's got a computer everybody's a producer <clears throat> so to find the stuff you're after it it, it takes its time you know and, and to find those and also what I find as well and you'll probably understand this is that the because I draw from a history of music within the edits and everything, the quality of these tracks has to stand up to what went before. It can't just be a, a decent track because everything else is, you know, I'm playing is either kind of classic or cult classic or, you know, it, it's of a certain level. But, um, you know, to find things that fit into that. But, you know, things pop up and I always bring in, any newer stuff that I can play alongside the edits and the older original tracks or whatever it is, you know, um, there's no closed shop at all on that. You know, I play bits of house if, if you know, I, I, I'm open anything if it fits the vibe. Good, so we'll make sure we keep sending you our material. We're going to keep yeah, bombarding absolutely. you. 
<laughs> and another note, are you a social media? Um, do you feel social media is important now? Because that's today's situation with the, with, with promoting and keeping yourself active out there. Is that important to you? Well, I mean, I couldn't have come back into it without the internet. The internet has been the major, um, you know, facilitator of what I'm able to do and reach people. Um, at the same time as that, there's so much negative about the internet. I mean, the world we live in, I think, has been made worse by, via, you know, what's going on online. I, I, I think one of the worst things for me was I remember, like, when I started going online, there used to be some great uh, websites, forums with either dance history, DJ history had one that was like um, disco.com in America, Deep House page, faith all these really good sites where people came and discussed dance culture and dance music and um there were moderators on those sites so if there were arguments they'd step in and do that and all that has been lost to facebook and i think the sad thing there is that the people that have the biggest facebook following seem to be the most obnoxious people it seems so, like narcissism seems to rule the roost these days doesn't it so now you don't have that kind of welcoming arena where everyone kind of helping with information to each other. You have like clicks of people. And if somebody doesn't agree on one level, that's, uh, you know, they, a load of people pile in against them. And, you know, I just think it's become obviously a toxic situation. You can see that in politics and everything, you know. And I think the same thing exists, you know, right across the board. So I, I, I use social media purely on a professional business level. I try and avoid it in any other way. You know, before I get off subject and close this, you know, what brought us to this? And thank you again for this, you know, putting this together, this discotheque archives. What was the driving force for this book? Well, initially it was the DJ magazine. They uh, they presented me with an award, an industry award, like it was the one the awards when you get you get when you're getting old, you know. <laughs> so it's very nice, but you mean, you know. mean, you mean set out here's your pasture award, set out to pasture. Enjoy retirement. Here's your retirement award. Thanks for your service. Of his achievement. I can go and I can go and put my slippers on now and um, smoke my pipe. Um, but yeah, they said to me, you know, are you up, would you be up for doing a column? Because obviously I did my blog and I wrote about all sorts of things. And they were saying, you know, you can talk about different aspects of, you know, dance history and stuff. And so I thought about it and I kind of thought it through. And, and I thought, well, I, you know, I can use this for my advantage because my whole thing is about drawing attention to what went before and the black music scenes that went before. So I was able all of a sudden to be talking about, as I say, Guy Stevens and James Hamilton and Count Suckle, these old English DJs no one has heard about in DJ magazine, you know, within those pages. So I was able to do over two years, I think I did, well, I did 25 columns, four pieces in each column, a label, a record, a club, a DJ. And that was it. But I always had in mind that it would work best brought together into a, a book form. Um, and this year with the lockdown and no work and everything, thinking about how, what can we do and what should we do? The idea is just put this out like independently. And initially we weren't thinking any more than about 250. If we got 500, we would have been absolutely made up. 
But in the end, we have to kind of, in 10 days, we got to 1600 and capped it because it's a limited edition. I didn't want to take the piss or anything and keep printing it. Take the piss. Why not? Well, because I want to also, you know, uh, the, the 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 move on this now is down the line. I'm going to ex- have an extended hardback edition of this, and I'm going to get it. Printed. Are you going to do hard? You going to do the hard copy? Yeah, I'm going to do it. You know, table. So, so I mean, it'd be more like the table, the coffee. Yeah, table. yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So yeah, yeah. There's I mean, been other crystal books written like that, where they're hard copy yeah. with the leather, the leather, the leather bound feel to it. This is, yeah. but this is quite nice, actually. Oh, I'm so happy with the format that we got from it. This the- format's fabulous. My yeah. size of blue. Everyone that knows Blues and Soul has got the same size of a Blues and Soul magazine, but but book form. That's what it reminded me of when I saw. It, but much more classier in the sense of slick and and glossy. Yeah, but semi gloss. Well, what I wanted to do as well is that we're talking about all these people on here mm-hmm. are ancient characters. If you're a young DJ or something, these are this is a long time ago. And it, generally, if you come across history and stuff, it's always. Uh, you know, in a very black and white kind of, you know, uh, I, I wanted it to be colourful. I wanted it to express the vibrancy of these scenes and these characters. I wanted it to show that there was a youthfulness and an energy about it. And that is the and Pete Fowler, who did all the images. The yeah, artist, nice job. Beautiful job he did. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> I love his work anyway. Uh, he'd done a Mancuso picture Um that I own now. He'd actually done a, a painting of it, you know, canvas. So it's only a small canvas. And when I saw that, I thought uh, mm, he might be the guy. I don't know if you've ever come across uh, Robert Crumb, you know, the comic book guy. He was no, I never came across him. No. Well, he did uh, these amazing illustrations of blues and country artists from the 30s and stuff. Okay. He did these hand, and I mean, they were incredible, and and I that always stuck with me. So the idea of an illustration of these people, um, rather than a photograph or anything, that's what kind of was. was the well, I'll tell you with the Norman Jay picture. I'll show everybody. Take a look. Yeah, it's <laughs> in the Norman Jay shot. He got that pretty right, guys, uh, boys and girls. Look at that Norman Jay. If you know how Norman Jay, that's his signature look with the hat and all. Absolutely, that's Norman for you. Yeah, this is a really good. This is a really good. Really good book. You even got the J. I even like that you found. He even has Club Zanzibar's business card. Uh, well, we've got to search <laughs> everything out, but but yeah, you know, it, it was really good to do both the. I mean, it's mainly New York and UK. You can tell your love. You can see where your love comes from, just from the book. Oh, nice one. But I mean, you got places like Trocadero Transfer in San Francisco. Yep. My another friend of mine's played there, Bobby Vitteridi. That's why. Yeah. Yep. Well, that was a, he, he won DJ of the Year for a few years in America, didn't he? Uh, I think. Two yep. years running. Uh, yeah, that was a, a big club, you know, and, um, you know. Like, oh, Trocadero was very big in San Fran. Yeah. Yeah. So, Alfredo, so, who, Alfredo, me, he just rests in peace, but he's got a piece on Alfredo, how important Alfredo is. I, I had a good time. Me, rest in peace. I mean, didn't Alfredo, didn't just Alfredo pass? If he has, it's only in the last few days. Oh, my God, it was like, with, I thought it was no, no, I don't think. I don't think Alfredo's gone. I hope not. I think so. I think I saw something recent. Let oh, me check. Okay. Oh, my God. Maybe I'm wrong. If I'm wrong, let it be so. But I thought, I thought I saw something where they said Alfredo was no longer with us. 
Well, I sent him a, a copy of that book a few days ago and somebody in the beat that got his address for me. So um, it would have only been, I'm sure I would have seen it. Well, maybe it wasn't. Am I wrong? If I'm wrong, I'm wrong. I'm sorry. Celebrate on Alfredo's behalf. Yes. Sorry. No, somebody else just, just passed that played at Cafe Mambo. Okay. Recently. I'm going out of my mind. Because I okay. saw it, I was like, whoa. When I, I was actually shocked when I saw it. Okay. I'm on Facebook. Now. Maybe it was wrong. Maybe I'm wrong. Yeah, I mean, um, I'm like I said, when I got the book, because you asked for my address... And when I received it, I was like, I didn't even realize you wrote a book. And I'm, I was like, perfect timing. I got it like about a week ago. So I had time to go through it while I was having coffee every morning. I said, let me go through this. And, you know, you're always looking for bits and pieces that maybe you missed. And you got it right. Get that book, everyone. Greg Wilson's Discotech Archives. In fact, some people wrote, they can't even get their hands on it now. It's already but, sold out. Um, I mean, until we, we, we do the... Well, then knock on his door, everyone. Or eBay. <laughs> eBay. Ask him for the second. Ask him for the second revisions. Third revisions. I'm not selling mine, so don't ask. Good, good. You keep it. So we're coming back to COVID. Last question, most importantly, because we're at that point. Are you taking the vaccination? Well, I think we've got to, you know, I mean, it's got to be done. Yeah, there's obviously, you're thinking, is it all, it's been rushed through, what are they? Right. What world are we, we, we've got to do something, you know? I mean, obviously, there's a lot of deniers out there who don't even think there is COVID and stuff, but, you know, it's just crazy stuff. And, you know, here in England at the minute, we've got record cases. It's, I mean, I think it's the same in the States as well, isn't it? It's just through the roof at the second. There's a second strain started in, in London and in the South. I mean, it's a, it's a mess down there at the minute. So, um, yeah, we've got to, we've got to do something about it. So when, when I can get a vaccination, of course, I'm going to have one. Oh, well, me too. I, you know, even if I don't want to take it, everyone, they're going to be asking us to get on a flight for me to come into someone's country to play. I'm going to have no choice but to have health immunization papers. Where's your papers? Mm. Here it is. <laughs> it's going to be on your phone. You have the QC code here. Put it through. You know, I mean, it's sad, but this is the, this is the life we live now. This is and we've a, got Brexit as well. So, you know, we've... Oh, you deal with Brexit. I've been, I've been dealing with all that for years because UK, I'm American. So when I come in, I have to go to each port of entry as now you're feeling what I feel. Yeah, dealing with Europe, you know, it's like we've already had to do that in the States and everything. So when we come to the States, you've got to pay a ridiculous amount of money to get a visa, you know, if you want to cut a proper visa to come there and stuff. And so what kind of charges are going to be in Europe now for DJs traveling? Um, who's to tell? But, we, you know, even like our posts now, we have to fill in custom dockets for European posts and things already. So things are going to change massively and... Um, I don't know what's on the other end of it, how it's all going to work out, but, you know, what can we do? We've just got to go with the flow, you know. Go with it and keep keep moving. We are um, pawns in the game of life. And so now you're going to keep working out and get ready for that day to come out and party, right? To do it well, again. When I can get back to the gym, I'll, I'll start again, you know. Oh, that's right, because you're on tier, I don't even know what, I think your area just went up to tier four, right? Well, we're at tier three where we are, but but London and, and uh, 
a lot of the south is tier four now which is like worse than worse basically you know tier three was supposed to be the the, the bad one now it's we've got higher tiers than that so it's it's obviously getting getting progressively worse i think we covered everything my friend my god you gave us a history lesson of history lessons you are yeah, definitely a professor I love the idea of you showing what you're doing and, you know, the, the way that you kind of uh, put people at ease in your conversation and, um, you know, and and bring out this this kind of information, the richness of our, of our culture, our dance culture, our transatlantic dance culture. It needs to be documented because a lot of people not hadn't, a lot of people don't have the forum nor the chance to ever tell their stories. And because we both lived this life, these are the type of stories we want to share with our viewers and our fans alike, everywhere. People need to hear all of you speak and, and put the human touch. Just not jumping off a plane and getting onto a pair of turntables with a reel-to-reel, but really give us what it takes and what journey it took to get there. And that's why True House Stories every week delivers excellence. And you are there. You're right up there in the diamonds of excellence, my friend. Happy oh, New Year to you, <laughs> and we want to wish you all the success, and may you do another essential mix and blow us away in all the radio shows you do, and just keep doing what you're doing, and trust me, people, age is a number. Wisdom is power. <laughs> <laughs> I'll go with that. I'll go with that. <laughs> okay, age is a number. Wisdom is power. So the more, more advice you can give us, the more power you have, the stronger you will always be. I always tell everyone, don't stop what you're doing. Thank you, everyone. Greg Wilson, thank you so much. We are indebted to you. Happy New Year. Much success in 2021. Let's put this 2020 behind us as quick as we can. Yeah, I agree. To all the fans, you know how we do each and every week. We'll see you next Wednesday again. Maybe, maybe not. We shall see. Everyone, have a safe, happy new year. Don't drink too much. Be careful and don't drink and drive. Take care and great. Thank you again, mate. And we will keep yourself. Yes, and you too. Have a great holiday week. Take care, my friend. Take care.